0: Welcome to Concept Checker, the case of terrorism. I'm your host, François Roland. Welcome back. In this episode, we'll look at the etymology of the word terror and its associations. So we'll look first at terror and then panic, which is associated to it, and look at the god Pan and what it represented for the ancient Greeks, and this linguistic adventure in the dusty corners of the history of language will help us understand what this word carried in it ori- originally. Then, after having studied that, we will conclude by summing up everything that is wrong, I believe with the use of terror and terrorism today, which will lay the groundwork for the next episode in which we'll get down to business and start building our model to enable us to look at the phenomenon itself and develop a new terminology. The history of language tells us that terrorism is derived from Latin "terreo terrere, which is uncontrollable fear. "Terere" itself derives from Sanskrit, which from "tras trasati," which is literally to tremble. In other words, terror is the act of trembling from fear uncontrollably. Trasthrasati itself is related to stupa, stupeo in Latin, which is derived from stud, which means being hit in Sanskrit. So it is a state of being immobilized and febrile at the same time, being immobilized without the capacity of controlling your actions, or acting at all. So it's a state of internal petrification, if you will. You turn to stone, prisoner of your body, in a mind that is completely and uniquely focused on the shock that you are experiencing. And one of, I think, the most visual representation of that state uh, is actually the story of Loth in the Old Testament, in which the wife of Loth just as they are leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, which is being, you know, destroyed by a hail of fire, turns around and is instantly transformed in a pillar of salt. That is a very powerful image of what is meant by the state of terror. The second part of the word terrorism is ism. Now that suffix is from Latin and as we all know is excessively and widely used for all sorts of things. And it basically transforms a common word into an abstract word. So it has the effect on a term a bit like helium in a balloon. So if you want to inflate a word you put you stick ism to it and you have what resembles a concept, but it's not a concept. It's really a generalization of a common word, and which is why it is very much appreciated by journalism and sometimes scholars as well to come up with some clever new word for something they are not capable or too lazy to properly define and name. So a word with ism does not so much define or apply to a specific act. It does usually imply uh, a scheme, a general pattern of behavior or thought that uh, is related in some way to the main word, which was just massively inflated. Having been inflated... That word then becomes rather fuzzy to describe, and that's how you have thousands of books that end up being written trying to describe what is contained in that fake concept. And this is exactly what's happened with terrorism, which, when the when the Tsar in Russia decided that the Russian anarchists were terrorists, because their big example and model for the Russian anarchists was indeed the French Revolution, and the French revolutionaries, as we saw in the preceding episodes, described themselves as terrorists, and so the Russian authorities decided that the anarchists were terrorists. and. As we saw it completely inverted everything and today we are still using this piece of, in very successful piece of Russian propaganda from the mid-19th century as a tool of law. Now let's turn to the other term associated with terror which is panic. Now terror and panic have a similar source and have completely opposite meanings in the sense that terror makes you take root on the spot; you are frozen in in place, whereas panic makes you gives you wings in flight. So panic is, on the face of it, associated to the god Pan. Now, who was the god Pan in ancient Greece? Pan was supposedly the son of Hermes the messenger of the gods. Now, who who was Hermes? It was the god of medicine, of magic, the god of diplomats, of uh, secret agents, moving with his winged feet in the shadows, in the night, discreetly. It was also the god of thieves. So it is associated with all this, uh, Hermes is this, Shady, silent being, which evolves in the shadows and is, to a degree, mysterious, and is associated on the whole with what we would call, you know, behind closed doors politics. So he would be a good friend to somebody who was setting up a conspiracy in the shadows, biding his hour, collecting information, plotting keeping his cards close to his chest. All that is associated with Hermes. Now, Pan, he's a monstrous creature, not at all discreet, and his attribute, one of his attributes, is the flute, the, uh, Pan's flute, which is made of reeds. Why? Because, according to mythology, he also had um, very powerful sexual drive, and so one day, in his various adventures, he came across this absolutely delightful nymph, and this nymph, well, he wanted to rape her, and she didn't want, so she ran away, and there's only so much you can do to flee a horny god, so she decided to transform herself into reeds, and the wind blowing through the reeds made this sound, which, well, to console himself, Pan cut the reeds and, uh, play and created the flute. So that's me, that's me Too in antiquity. And the name of that instrument was the syrinx, which happened to be the name of the nymph. Pan, therefore, is associated with nature, with the forest, with the shepherds and herds with mountains. So he's a very earthy god and associated with a lot of natural phenomena, particularly natural phenomena which would elicit a degree of fear and concern among men. And the reason why Pan created Panic is originally because he was said uh, to frighten the sheep round about between noon and one o'clock or something. And him frightening the sheep because they were there, you know, being sheep. <coughs> <coughs> and that disturbed his rest, and so he would frighten them off. And the thing with frightened sheep that run around is that sometimes they break their legs and what happens with a sheep that has broken his leg? Well, you tend to kill it. So it was not good news for shepherds to have panicking sheep. And so to allay the god, shepherds took to playing the sirens to calm down Pan. So how did Greeks come upon the idea of erecting temples? for this terrible being. Because there was one case, apparently, in which Pan came in as a friend. It was apparently during the Battle of Marathon. You know the story of the warrior who ran 40 kilometers, 42 kilometers, back to Athens after the victory. He intervened in that battle on the side of the Greeks by sowing panic. Amongst the Persians. And they were so thankful they erected a temple for him. So to sum up, Pan is not so much violent as he instills the fear of imminent death and destruction and unfathomable misery rather than inflicted directly. And therefore, panic basically means fleeing before Pan. It's like this primeval fear you might have when you're so unfortunate as being in the dark in a vineyard or in the forest and you have the impression of being watched and followed and you have this sense of dread that comes upon you and if you really develop this sense you might start to run away because there is this This ominous sense of danger that surrounds you and permeates you. In other words, Pan, or Panic, Pan would be the god of psychological warfare. Making you believe something terrible will happen in order for you to behave in a certain way. Pan is also a god that is not particularly sexy, if you will. Uh, his, His representations is... Uh, you know, with uh, the hooves of um, sheep or goats and uh, with the um, head of a goat standing upright and with the body of a man. So he's a kind of a, he's a chimera. So because he is so monstrous, he is an outcast among the gods, not particularly nice, not particularly attractive. And he is, uh, he would do very nicely as a god of terrorists in our today's senses, and you also it would be associated with well the outcasts in society, the people who are whom society doesn't want and who they don't want society either. Terrorism. After we've explored some etymology, even mythology, the semantic field, we have new elements in hand now because we've seen it's not a word that is satisfactory as it is used in law. Now we see that it is associated, the word terror, to natural events, to terrifying natural events, which are beyond, often, beyond human control so earthquakes or volcanic eruptions or storms, such things like that. And the problem I see here is that the attacks caused by terrorists, or so-called terrorists, are not natural events. They are human-made events that are planned for, that are executed by man, against man, but they are perceived as if they were a miniature natural event, it's beyond the control of those who are victim, who fall victim to it. So, it's as if when we're attributing to those who do it some form of natural agency. Interestingly, the word for panic in Sanskrit is vidrava. Vi means to separate. Vid means to perceive, to know, to think of. And rava is noise. So in in these three syllables, there's a lot of ideas put together, which is basically seeing, perceiving, and separating. It's like viplava, which is v is separating, and plava is to jump. So jump apart, to... uh, spring apart in, in in fear after perceiving something. And um, all this to say that this word only makes sense from the point of view of those who are victims, not necessarily from the point of view of those who commit these acts. And there are other problems with that word as well. It's that because it is such an imprecise, rather puzzling word, it can be applied by more authoritarian regimes to any number of things they dislike, anything that questions the legitimacy of their rule or the legitimacy of their ideology. So it is a useful tool of repression. On top of it, because it is associated to such Powerful feelings, it is in itself a very emotional word, which, in my mind tends to prevent really thinking through it. it is you you cannot uh, rationalize entirely a completely emotional word, and because it is so drenched in emotion, it's an easy sell to like, oh they are. Terrorists, they spread fear, or we are really afraid of them, so therefore they are terrorists, and that is not the way we would like the law to operate at all. Finally, this condition of terror, I think, can be broken down in four parts, which reinforce each other. The first element is the fear of, you know, the Unexpected possibility of a future absolutely murderous event. That's the first part. Then there's the fear of that of number one. Then there's the situation of terror itself when such an event does occur. And fourth, there's this in turn this this inner petrification that it, it happens as a consequence of it, which we know as trauma. And this, in turn, reinforced, goes back to number one. And so there's this endless cycle It goes through these four steps. Finally, I'll quote Walter Benjamin, who wrote in 1921 an essay called The Critique of Violence. And you will find a lot of material online referring to that very interesting text. In this, he theorizes on mythical violence and I quote, mythic violence in its original form is a simple manifestation of the gods. It's not a m- means to their end, not even a manifestation of their will, but first and foremost a manifestation of their very existence. Mythic violence is bloody violence on life by virtue of their existence, pure divine violence on on life by virtue of life itself. The first demands victims of sacrifice. The other welcomes where comes them. Terror extends its circles of fear far beyond its immediate victims. The power of terror depends on the context, the collective context in which it appears. What I want to say by this is that the re- collective reaction to an attack is richer in teachings about the society which has been victimized than it is about the aggressors or their methods, end quote. And when he speaks of mythic violence here, he is referring to Greek myths or Roman myths, because if you look at divine violence in say, the Old Testament or the Bible, the bloodiness is on the hands of human violence. God kills bloodlessly by plagues, by swallowing Korach in, you know, the soil which he opens, beneath their feet, uh, or he burns them with divine fire, spontaneous combustion kind of scenario or by unleashing a massive flood. So there, uh, Walter Benjamin is clearly looking at uh, Greek antiquity rather than uh, divine violence in the biblical sense. So to a degree, when these people we still call terrorists commit these acts, these attacks, for them it is an affirmation of their existence. In this sense, they're like kind of playing... Greek gods, if you will, they exist through their violence only. That's how they assert their existence in some society. But the parallel will stop here. At any rate, we've seen so far the complexity of the phenomenon we are facing compared to where the word used to describe it comes from and what it is actually associated with. And it's, pretty clear that we need something new and that's what we will start doing in the next episode. We're going to delve into making, creating a um, model, cosmological model, in order to set up a model of the state. See you next time. <laughs>